Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Hey friends, for the rest of the year, we're bringing back old episodes of Boss Barista. Part of the reason we're doing this is because the community of listeners who are part of Boss Barista is really, really different than it was a couple of years ago. But also many of these episodes carry lessons that I still carry with me and are worth revisiting. What you're about to listen to now is part two of a conversation with freelance writer and PhD student Rachel Northrup about coffee markets. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I strongly suggest that you start there. Rachel gives a primer on how coffee is traded and what the coffee futures market looks like. And she'll explain what a coffee futures market is. In part two, though, we're now looking at the application of all of those concepts. How do coffee markets affect the actual price of coffee? What is the commodity price of coffee and why is it far below the cost to actually produce coffee? Coffee right now is traded at about a dollar per pound, but the cost to produce coffee is often two to three times that amount. So how is this possible? This is where we move past the theoretical and discuss the impact on coffee farmers and the way that markets are designed to potentially exploit the labor of others, often replicating colonial power structures in the process. Here's part two of my conversation with Rachel. So we're in part two of my conversation with Rachel Northrup. Uh, Thank you for bearing with me for this long on this topic. Um, And the last time we talked, we talked a little bit about like what a futures market looks like. And we came to some really big, I think, sort of ideas about how coffee is traded and how a futures market is just a tool for trading and a tool for managing prices. But sort of towards the end of our conversation, we came to the idea that like the specialty market never has to pay the price of the C market. Like that's almost like completely independent. Um, And I think probably one of the reasons that the C market is so heavily tied to what coffee, like specialty coffee does is that we treat like markets as this like monolith, like the market. So I was hoping in this part of the conversation, we could talk a little bit about what farmers are actually paid and really looking at the transactions between farmers and people who are buying coffee. Um, so I guess let's jump into it a little bit. Um, just to go over that last point a little bit, like how does the C market price of a coffee, what's happening on the floor in New York, quote unquote, um, relate to what farmers are actually paid? Yeah. So thanks for having me, having me back to continue this (laughs) conversation, hopefully not too abstract for everyone who's listening, but, um, yeah, so just sort of um, to to make that connection, yeah, and it's and this is where again I mentioned before that it's sometimes tricky to talk about this in like satisfyingly declarative terms because there are so many qualifications of well it can be or it could be or sometimes and that's because there are just so many different ways to trade, meaning to buy and sell something, uh, in this case containers or bags of coffee, um, and so yeah, I think that's a a good point to start on is that the price that the futures market discovers is totally separate or can be totally separate from the the contracts for physical coffee. 
Um, and But one way the two can be related is by something that's called differentials, meaning that you price either above or below plus or minus the price that's on the futures market. And again, one reason that people do that is because that's something that they can use as part of the hedging process. Um, so those differentials essentially are a way of saying like, I know my coffee is not worth this number that's being discovered on the C market. So here's a way of like building in either a quality premium or some, um, some way to account for that difference. And those differentials can be as much or as little as you want them to. They can be a few cents. They can be $5. You know, again, that's at your discretion when you're writing those physical contracts or contracts for physical coffee. And, but just still having that futures market as that benchmark in there, again, that allows people to use the, the, the price risk management tool of hedging if that's something they're choosing to do. And so that's where you can you can end up with dollar amounts that are, you know, three, four or five dollars a pound for coffee, but still somewhere in there have used the C market as a part of the pricing process. Again, just because it is a shared number that everyone can see and it, it provides like that starting point. Especially if you're hedging coffee, then you sort of need that same shared starting point to undertake your price management, risk management hedging process. <laughs> so um, so that's one way that the two can be can be related. And then there's actually a really great graphic. Again, I encourage people to, to look into all these different resources that are out there. Um, the, the Colombian Coffee Federation, the FNC, on their website, they actually have a really great graphic that shows um, what I had people draw out for me as diagrams when, when I was in Colombia. They have, you know, their people who offer the extension services are really great about helping producers with all their questions. And I just sat in line on the office hour days and got the people who worked as extensionistas to answer my questions too. And including drawing out a little, a little equation of how the Colombian, they call it the tablero, like the signboard price that producers see when they go to drop off their coffee at a co-op, how that price is calculated. Um, and so it has several components. You have to do a lot of conversions. You know, the coffee on the futures market is traded in dollars per pound, US dollars per pound. And producers in most countries deliver their coffee in kilos and then the local currency. So right there, you already have some conversions that have to take place in the units of measure and then also in the, the currency. So part of the price that producers are paid also has to do with local currency fluctuations that are changing due to a whole other host of factors. So sometimes even if the C market price doesn't move that much, coffee might be worth a lot less or a lot more in a certain origin just because the value of that currency has changed. So there's factors like that that are sort of again, related to themes of global finance and, and relative values, but they're, again, that's something that affects different countries differently at different times. Um, and then in this Colombian, uh, this FNC graphic, it also shows the way that it goes from the C market price, and then there's a conversion to the Colombian peso, and then they subtract um, a few cents per pound for um, all the funds that they gather and manage and use for the extension services and for some of the um, other um, like trainings and support and different things that they offer to the members of the FNC. And then there's also um, in Colombia, they have a, they call it the factor, factor de rendimiento, which is like 
your conversion unit um, based on the sort of quality of your coffee, like how many defects, how many pounds of parchment do you have to deliver to yield one exportable sack of 70 kilos? And so they have a, a calculation like a base. I believe it's 94 is the base factor that's sort of factored into the price. And then depending on if your coffee has a higher or lower factor, your price adjusts a little bit. Um, and so it, it really is like a, a calculation. So it starts with the C market again as like this benchmark starting point. And then from there, it calculates all the all those other components. And then another interesting thing is that if you're a part of a cooperative, very often you receive one price at the moment in which you deliver your coffee. But then at the end of the year, the whole cooperative as a business sees what their earnings are. And then because producers are members, meaning owners of that business, that they'll then receive another payment as part of the sort of end of the year settlement, um, which works differently in different cooperatives. And then Actually, on Colombia is actually an interesting origin because they're offering offering different options for producers to sort of do their own hedging in terms of, you know, if you decide you want to receive a certain price now, maybe that means you do or don't receive something else later, or here's a way, you know, different ways to enter into agreements to deliver a certain amount of coffee at a certain price, but make that agreement ahead of time. Um, so there's... So there's basically, to, to sort of circle back to that question that producers had asked me back in 2012 in Costa Rica and Colombia was when they say, where does the price come from? Well, it does start with that New York C market price as being the shared globally visible price. And then a series of calculations through currency conversions and through weights and measures conversions and with different premiums added or subtracted for quality with any sort of like tax or sort of contribution to a shared fund um, deducted from that. And so, or the premiums from certifications, that's something else that can be built in there. And and then, so that's how you get to like the, the signboard price. But one of the questions that I had was why is that signboard price, you know, that's, why is the number from the C market used why that number? Why not start with some other benchmark? And that's because if you think of all of the, the trade of coffee happening cyclically is that the co-ops are buying from their members, but they need to buy at a price that makes sense with what they're able to sell that coffee at, at that moment. So they have one amount of coffee coming in their doors, but they have another amount of coffee going out the door. So if the coffee that's going out the door is going out the door at one price, there's no way they can then pay a price that's like double that, let's just say, for right. what's coming in. And so right. that was sort of, I mean, that part was like a sort of very cyclical, conceptually like hard to <laughs> sort of wrap your head around that. Again, this is all like, and that's where I think it's interesting to just think about how much of price is designed to facilitate the trade of goods versus to make life livable for either the end user or the very first producer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point to make that the reason that like some of these benchmarks are used is because like you have to continue to participate in the market. Like it's better right. to sell your coffee at a lower price than to not sell it at all. And if you're that middle person buying coffee from cooperatives and then like if you're the FNC then selling it to larger producers like if you pay $4 a pound and then are only able to sell it for 2, then like that makes no sense like the system breaks. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's, so that's sort of the connection is that the only reason, so really, I mean, 
again, this is a sort of oversimplified statement, but the only reason that you need to use the globally visible trading price as the price that you pay for your raw material is because you also need to sell at that globally visible price at that same time. So well, that also necessitates that people are paying at that price too, right? Like if, I mean, this would never happen because we're in a global economy, but like if everybody decided that they weren't paying that price and they were paying like $2 more, then you could say like, oh, the market is working in this way. Like I can do this, but mm-hmm. right. I don't and know. So basically, yeah. So, I mean, the, the way that it's uh, like, it could always happen that the price moves in your favor, meaning that all of a sudden the buyer will pay you the market, you know, moved and the person who's buying coffee will pay much more than what you paid for it. You know, if you're a cooperative in Colombia and you're buying from your members, it could happen that in those months that the coffee's in parchment and being milled and prepped for export and sampled to roasters and importers and everybody, it could happen that in those months, the price jumps up by 20 cents. That would be great. And in that case, you would have bought it and then sold it at a higher price just because that's what happened in the market. But the reason that you're doing, the reason that you're using these visible shared benchmark prices is because that would be great if that happens. In that case, you sort of don't need insurance. You know what I mean? It's almost like thinking about if everything goes well, then you don't need any of these protection tools, but the tools are always designed for the the, the chance that it won't. And so that's why it's called price risk management because okay. inherent in every transaction is the risk that what you bought will be worth less when you go to sell it or the other way around. Now, what you need to buy will be so expensive in the moment that you need it that you won't be able to afford it. Right. So then if that happens, then the whole market just breaks. Right. That just means that no one can do the thing that they need to do and everything sort of stops and everyone just goes bankrupt like in one, you know, in one season of trying to either sell or buy whatever they need. And so that's why it's called a risk management tool is that, again, if everything is working great and there is no risk, then you'll always be able to, you know, sell something for higher than you paid for it. You'll always be able to buy a product at a price that, you know, is within your company's budget and that will end end up with a bag of coffee on the shelf that you know consumers will buy like if there were no risk then you wouldn't need any protection you wouldn't need any management tools but there there is always inherent in any transaction there's the risk that the price will move against you so all of these tools you're basically using them just to protect yourself from the price moving against you so it very well could again if in the example if it moves in your favor and it jumps up you very well could have paid those producers 20 cents more for all that coffee because at the end of the day, you know, the market changed and that was where you were able to sell it. But you can't take that risk as the person who's in the position to have to forward the coffee to the next party in the chain. And so that's where, again, the cooperatives are, you know, because they're a group, if that happens, then those proceeds are split among the members in different ways, depending on how the cooperatives organized and and which funds go directly back to the members versus versus which stay in like a shared development account. Um, and if you're selling to an intermediary where you're not a member of the co-op and you don't get the benefits of that, then, you know, you just missed out on on that. So that's why, um, yeah, to go back to your question, sort of when we say the market, um, it's true that there's like a ton of mini markets <laughs> within the market that you have this big coffee futures exchange again, which is like this giant global price discovery mechanism. 
but then at the end of the day, you have people buying and selling coffee in thousands and thousands of local contexts where things like the currency or the cost of inputs and transport and all these other things are fluctuating constantly and changing. And so what makes sense in those different little local markets um, looks different. So you have different ways of managing that risk. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the things that's tricky is that, the again, this market is designed as a price risk management tool. And I do think that one of the things that is worth trying to better understand is why some people in the supply chain have more access and expertise in using that tool than others do. And I think there's there are other people who are in organizations who are asking that question as well. I think in the, the SCA's price crisis response initiative that was on their list of recommendations was expanding access to both the education and to the actual capital to, you know, this is it's sort of like an insurance policy. It's a great tool, but if you can't afford the insurance policy, then you can't <laughs> make use of that tool. Right. Um, so that's a good yeah. point. That's actually, I just wrote that question down. Um, like uh, mentioning the SCA. So like a couple of years ago, like the, like there was a big focus turned onto the C market and the copy price crisis. And in the way that we've been talking about C market pricing and how the futures trading market is kind of like a tool, one tool that one can use for pricing. I was wondering, and you've answered this a little bit, but I was wondering if you can expand on it. Like, then why do we care about the C market? Like, why has the SCA, I mean, you can't answer for the SCA, obviously, but like, why, like, why do we care about this price if generally, like, we can step away from it really easily? Right. Well, so the, that's sort of where the, it gets tricky is that we can step away from it really easily, but again, it becomes really risky. If you're sort of operating in a cash market with no regard to that standardized or that globally visible shared price, then there's a lot more risk because you can't use that tool to protect you. And again, you have all of the exposure that if you buy, thinking as like an exporter or an importer, if you're buying expensive coffee from origin and you're paying the producer you know, whatever the producer is asking, they're saying, this is my cost of production. This is my margin. Here's what my coffee's worth. This is take it or leave it. And someone in the connective business buys that coffee with the hope of then selling it onward. They're a hundred percent exposed, meaning that they have no guarantee. They have no tool, nothing that says that they will be able to recoup and then some what they paid out for that coffee. And, and so that is why most People in the coffee trade use the C market and hedging tools or use the, you know, the, the C market discovered price or some sort of hedging tool in some way um, is because there's a ton, there's a ton of risk otherwise. And again, you could say that one way, one risk management tool is really strong relationships and knowing who you're working with and just being able to be confident that they won't default and that they won't dishonor and, you know, abandon their contract. Um, and there's plenty of successful coffee companies that don't use hedging tools that have other ways of managing their cash flow and their operations and their sourcing and, and everything that, that have found a way to be successful without using these. So it's like, that's, again, it's not to say that there's any way of doing business that is hundred percent required or that is hundred percent off limits. Um, but you sort of just have to know, again, what the limits and possibilities are of the different tools to then decide 
in your case, based on either, you know, your volumes or your market or your customer base or your timelines or, you know, um, the competition in your area or whatever it is, you know, finding sort of piecing together which of these work to make you confident that your business will be able to have, you know, trade, buy and sell at prices that don't put put your company out of business, basically. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. And it makes sense why, like, it can seem a little esoteric for us to talk about, like, the C market when, like, the majority of specialty coffee doesn't pay the C market price. But seeing how intertwined the C market price is with, like, differentials or how, like, places like the FNC have to determine how much they're selling for because, like, if they're, you know, if they buy coffee for way more and then they can't sell at the market, then like that doesn't work and it kind of keeps the whole market going. And I think it's easy to listen to this conversation at this point and be like, oh man, those two bitches are talking about like market stuff, like they're all posy for it. But I think this is the part of the conversation where we move a little bit to the idea of price versus cost and talking a little bit about how like, I'm going to go ahead and say that this is not a tool that is advantageous to most farmers. I would imagine. So I wonder, like, this is where we can talk about the idea of, like, who does this this tool serve truly and really? Correct. So let's, yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing to mention, too, is that, um, and I think that's, again, one of the things that Specialty Coffee has congratulated itself on and then also at the same time been quick to check itself on is that, um, and again, I'm not speaking for farmers. They're capable of speaking for themselves and explaining their own situations very articulately, but we know that most people who produce coffee do not produce 100% specialty. Um, in fact, we could maybe, you know, change those change those percentages a lot when saying that most, if not all producers, produce only a certain percentage that is specialty. And the rest of their coffee, they are subject to local prices, whether it's what the cooperative is paying or what another private buyer is paying to move the rest of their harvest. And so, um, and there's also been plenty, you know, people who have, much more expertise than I do explaining how if you take out all the best stuff and to put that in a small pile, then the remaining pile will actually be, you know, lower quality and that will be subject to maybe the C market press price minus something because the overall quality of what's left is now lower. So, you know, you have all of those things to consider. So that way, even if we, meaning we as individuals or we as a company or as a sector of the industry are paying prices that are much higher, it's always the question of for what percentage or for what amount and then what's happening with the rest of the coffee. So that's where I think it's important to think of, you know, all coffee is coffee. And so, yes, we can segment out specialty coffee and sort of maybe have one type of contract for one volume of it, but then like what happens to the rest of it and what does that mean for right. everyone involved? So I do think it's like important to again, to think of that's where, again, this gets like sticky where there's no easy answer. There's no like, that's why, that's why I'm, I repeat, I'm not making any suggestions or telling anyone what they should or can do, but, um, but just offering different ways to look at this from like the 20,000 foot sort of systemic perspective and some of these conceptual things. Um, And so that is that even if, even if an individual company is not trading coffee, buying and selling it, at a price that's based on the C market price, it's very likely that people in their supply chain do have to sell a fraction, if not the majority of their harvest at that price. 
Right. Uh, and that's a good point so, to make, too, because like we can say that we can remove ourselves entirely from the sea market in a way like mentally. We could say like, oh, we're paying this much for this coffee. But like you mentioned, if you're only buying, let's say, you know, it's specialty. So 20 percent because anything above an 80 is considered specialty. So I'm just going to use those numbers, even though those might that might not be accurate. Um, but if you're only buying 20 percent of, of a harvest at a higher price, as you mentioned, you're taking away from the quality potential of that other 80%, and it's probably sold at an even lower price. Um, so it's interesting just to make sure that those correlations between specialty and the C market are really strong, because even though we're able to kind of divorce ourselves from it sometimes, um, they're always interrelated and they're always interconnected. Yeah. And so, and I think, I mean, so this is something I'll just offer this as my own observation again from my research. Um, it's really interesting to look at the history of these markets. So, there actually used to be a lot more futures markets than there are today, in, in meaning separate exchanges. So, um, oh gosh, I don't have these exact notes in front of me, but the history was it was the New York Cotton Exchange existed first, and then there was the New York Coffee Exchange, and then it became, um, then I believe it was Coffee and Cotton merged, and then you had Coffee, Cotton, Cocoa, and Sugar in one exchange in New York, and then you had, so we see mergers and acquisitions happening in lots of industries. And that's actually also happened with the futures exchanges themselves. And to me, that seems like a, a really interesting thing that you had these exchanges that were private entities operating in different parts of the countries. You used to have grain exchanges in Kansas City and different parts of the, I think there was even one, um, there was a one, Mid-America exchange. There were a couple different ones. Um, in Chicago. And, and then today you're really left with the New York Stock Exchange and then the Intercontinental Exchange, which is um, which trades products that used to be on different exchanges around the country. And then you're left with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is in Chicago and still trades um, large volumes of grains and other, I believe, currency. And there's a lot of financial futures and things. So you've had this consolidation of these exchanges. And what's interesting about the Intercontinental Exchange is that the exchange itself is a publicly traded company. <laughs> so the Intercontinental Exchange actually owns the New York Stock Exchange, but is also a company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And so, and then Intercontinental Exchange is also now merged with um, the market in, in London that trades Robusta Coffee, Robusta Coffee, um, which is the, used to be called the LIFE, London International Financial Futures Exchange. And so, to me, that's where it gets really interesting when you now have, if a company is publicly traded, then it must be profitable or that's sort of in its bylaws and its raison d'etre. So the exchange itself, even though they as individuals don't trade um, or they as an entity or don't participate in their own exchange, the fact that the intercontinental exchange is a very, very large <laughs> and very profitable business that is also publicly traded, that to me is interesting. Um, and I think, so again, that's where it gets like, to me, really tricky because we're talking about coffee and we're talking about, you know, contracts to buy our 10, 20, 100 bags of green coffee. But the exchange that we're trading on is just part of this sort of global financial system at a level of scale that's like kind of impossible to think about. <laughs> it so, seems like this, yeah, it seems, I mean, maybe I'm wrong on this, but like, it seems like this is a system that's been designed to work for a certain group of people. Yeah. And I think that's where it was maybe not designed that way, that maybe maybe it was, maybe it wasn't the original sort of intention when a group of traders founded it, you know, in New York in the 1800s. But, but what has happened, <laughs> whether or not that was the intention, again, is the fact that these exchanges have 
have merged and there's very few of them. And this is the only place you can trade coffee. So it's sort of effectively is also a monopoly. <laughs> and, and so, um, and that's where it sort of gets into this interesting, like cyclical argument of, you know, you need everyone in one place if you want the price discovery to be the most accurate. But if everyone's in one place, <laughs> that's that's a monopoly. This is the only exchange that you can trade coffee futures on. So um, actually, I shouldn't say that. That's not true. I do believe there's a domestic one in Brazil and there's other um, there. There's there either are or can be or have been other local exchanges in in producing countries. Um, but in terms of global coffee contracts, both Arabica and Robusto are now traded effectively on the intercontinental exchange. So. Um, I think that if you're looking at that sense, absolutely, coffee is is traded in an environment that serves people with massive amounts of capital who are helping each other move and grow those massive amounts of capital. And, right. and people who are operating in the futures market, not for hedging reasons, and they call these commercial versus non-commercial traders. That's something else. There's different reports. You can see the number of positions that uh, people take that different participants in the futures market have taken. So actually, the Global Coffee Platform had a really great webinar back in November um, where the CEO of ICE came on and explained the Arabica futures contract in a really under like a really easy to understand, straightforward way. Um, and and so that's um, so you can see that the the exchange is. It's a business and it's part of these much larger businesses. And the people who are participating in the exchange for speculative purposes are trading everything. Like they're not just trading coffee. If you're a speculator, you're speculating, you've got a whole portfolio of different futures contracts, options contracts, you know, stocks, bonds, currency, whatever, the whole, the whole nine yards. And futures is just a small component of that. So again, that's part of why the you know people who enter for speculative purposes are not intending to ever take delivery of or receive delivery of green coffee, but they're also not paying attention to coffee exclusively. It's part of this whole giant financial ecosystem. So I do think that that that's also something else that makes it hard to parse out the price of coffee as like unique or in a vacuum. Is that again a lot of people who are trading are trading lots of things. So. People who are, are trading contracts for speculative purposes won't just look at the value of one thing. They'll also look at relative values or something you know, movements over time. And so you have coffee as just one product among this whole array of futures that people can trade. And that's where um, some of the critiques that I think are valid of the futures market is that there is become very little to no correlation or association between futures contract and what they call the underlying fundamental which means the physical coffee itself that the right idea, which is uh, wild yeah and so the whole idea of futures contracts which makes them much i think much more fascinating honestly and and different from stocks is that when you own stocks like let's say you own stock in apple you don't therefore own a certain number of iphones like you can't ever <laughs> you yeah. can't ever exchange or trade your share of apple for like stuff <laughs> You know, but futures contracts, you can. And the exchange actually has warehouses with coffee. 
Um, again, this is a very small percentage of how the coffee trade operates, but you, if you wanted to, again, buyer and seller of last resort, you could buy coffee from the exchange or you could sell your coffee to the exchange, provided that it meets the specs of the standardized contracts that they have. And then it's in the right warehouse and port and from the right, you know, from countries of origin that they consider, they call them deliverable growths. Um, and so that I think makes it really fascinating, but at the end of the day, that mechanism still exists, that those contracts can be converted into a physical unit. They have a value that directly corresponds and sometimes in some cases can and does literally correspond to delivering and receiving coffee. And right. that's something very different from most other financial instruments out there. So, um, so I do think, I think that's part of the argument that people have, have made or are trying to make or <laughs> in the process of making is that if you have a futures contract that is tied to an under, underlying fundamental that still is deliverable or receivable from one of these contracts, then maybe there should be more of a connection um, between the price of that contract and of that physical good. Um, but then on the other hand, too, you know, there are production contexts that have efficiency because whether it's different, um, you know, different environmental conditions or different technologies for harvesting, planting, fertilizing the varietals that are grown, that there are people that can produce coffee at prices around a dollar or a dollar and a half, two dollars, whatever, whatever it is, that there's a whole range of of where a coffee producer can be profitable. And so that also makes it tricky because who's to say that if it's profitable for one person at this price to sell coffee, just because right. it's not profitable for everyone, does that invalidate, you know, the fact that it does work for somebody? I think, um, and that's again where differentials come in is that that's one of the things that they can do is to try to absorb or account for that difference. Yeah, it's interesting to try to break down like the difference between price and cost because it's clear, obviously, that, and you've laid this out really beautifully, is that the cost of coffee, the cost to produce coffee is like, is 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 not the same as the price of coffee. Those are two totally separate things. But then when you look at the cost of coffee, that's also not a fixed number based on what you were saying earlier, like with environmental factors or like in Brazil, that's a highly efficient country. Like the cost of coffee is way lower than somewhere else where there isn't as much technology implemented. Um, so thinking about those two numbers in like kind of totally different ways, I think is really helpful to understand where the price of coffee comes from or some of the factors that come into play, because I think we still, again, look at it as this monolith of like everything works in this one particular way. There's one market price means this cost means that. And I mean, you know, um, this is me just being like, yeah, well, no, I yeah. think, I think, and then, and when I had mentioned in our, in our pre conversation conversation, um, the, the idea of cost came up because a lot of the writing that I've done, um, uh, is about, um, climate and coffee and agroforestry and different systems for sustainable production. And, and part of what's happening now is that there are, we're trying to different, different sectors, whether it's agriculture or finance, there are people who are trying to put a price on carbon. Let's just, just to say that, um, which means that people are trying to, we as a global community are trying to calculate and put a number on things in the past where we have not put a number, meaning how much carbon is emitted or how many green, how much green, how many metric tons of greenhouse gas are emitted from certain activities or, or are emitted from different land use changes and things. And so that thought 
even though that seems super separate from the process of pricing coffee and price discovery on a futures market, is we're in this really interesting global moment where we're about to create a brand new market for something that has never had a price. And so being and that being emissions and greenhouse gas and carbon credits and you know cap and trade and all those different terms that are out there now and buzzwords now. And actually the Intercontinental Exchange ICE just added a new um, climate change futures contract that has to do with exactly that. And so there's about to be a trade for actual carbon credits, but before they even get through pricing the carbon credits themselves, there's ways to trade futures against these things. So, <laughs> um, so again, just to, to bring this all back to cost and price, I think that very, very often there are costs that are not necessarily dollar costs that are either not taken into account or not fully taken into account in the process of putting a value or price on something. So in the past, um, looking at land use change or looking at emissions and greenhouse gas um, output, carbon footprint, all that stuff, that maybe was not taken into account in calculating the cost of doing business in a certain industry or in a certain way or in a certain location. But if you suddenly do decide that that cost matters enough to put a dollar amount on it, then the prices for things might change or you might have a new thing that needs to be priced. And so I think that's part of what's interesting in coffee is that we, are, we as an industry are finally paying the full cost, meaning that at different points in history, and here's where I'll, I'll make a nod to the episode that you recorded with Maggie Nyamumbo, um, where she talks about you know, the colonial and the slave trade or the slave labor history that's involved in coffee. And for basically the first, you know, majority, the first half, more than half, or even through the present day, so much of the labor that goes into coffee production is either not accounted for at all or is only partially accounted. So I call that un or undercompensated labor. And so if the way that you're calculating a cost, which then helps you calculate your price for the physical trade of something. If that initial cost calculation doesn't account for paying a living wage to every person who does a job related to that product, then of course the price that you're discovering for the physical contract <laughs> won't reflect the full cost. And then that is part of what skews the price that's discovered in the futures market. So I think that the coffee industry has lots of great examples of where everyone in a production context is being fully compensated at or above a living wage. And I think those are wonderful and there's, you know, more and more of them happening. But I think that it's sort of, it's almost daunting to think that maybe even the price that we pay as consumers for so many things, whether it's clothes or food, that those prices do not account for the full cost, whether it's of different environmental impacts or of the, the full labor along an entire production chain. And so that's where it sort of like brings it back to to the consumer side or to us, you know. And that's why I think I have a hard time thinking about price just about coffee because it the same concepts apply yeah. to literally every other food stuff or final product that is available um, anywhere <laughs> is that, um, you know, if you if you want to know how we get the price of coffee, then that makes me want to know, like, how do we get the price of anything? Like, you know, how do we, like bread or eggs or milk or local fruits and vegetables or the clothes and the sneakers and cars like, you know, these these mechanisms of calculation go into all of it. And I do think that that that's something that as we face different I mean, we're recording this during COVID-19. So as we see different things happen globally that are 
you know, traceable and related to climate change and land use change and our interaction with the environment and its interaction with us. Um, you know, if we start to have different methods for calculating cost, like really doubling down and saying, okay, how much does it cost to, you know, deforest this, you know, swath of land to then plant our food on? Like really how much does it cost? Not just in the dollar amount of planting it, but in the future problems that we're causing ourselves by emitting that much carbon from that land use change. So as we change our like calculation methods, I think that will be, that's an also an opportunity to change our pricing methods, but then all of that comes back to us as consumers. And are we ready to spend more of our income on food, spend more of our income on clothes if those prices change? So I think it's, that's, an, that's something else I always, I always try to keep in mind with um, thinking about price and, and thinking about value is, you know, if you value something, then that means that you understand that it's okay that I'm spending a greater percentage of the money that I have on something because the true cost of it or the, you know, the full cost of all the different human labor that went into it and all the different environmental sacrifices that went into it have this much higher dollar amount. Am I ready individually to pay for that? Can I pay for that? What else has to happen, you know, in my, in my life to possibly, you know, revalue something? So, um, so yeah, I think it's tricky to to see where, you know, it's it's there's a lot to be critical about for sure in having a futures exchange at the center of the pricing process for common goods. But then on the other hand, if we don't have that pricing process at the center and the cost of everything goes up significantly, like are we are we still just as happy to <laughs> to abandon right. it? So it's also kind of yeah, I mean it's I mean it's sort of like this you know, cycle that we didn't ask to be a part of, but here we are. And, and so, um, yeah, I think, again, that brings, brings us back to a lot of like products going back to the, what I had mentioned in our first conversation about being interested in like locavore movements um, and just what you can eat that's grown within a reasonable radius of where you live. And, and I do think, so I think that there's some separate conversations that can be had about things that do have a local alternative versus this is a product that we know has to have, coffee is a product that we know has to have a global supply chain because its growing conditions are limited. And so- Yeah. Um, That's an interesting distinction there. The idea, like when you kind of circle back on all of this, it actually kind of can come back to what can we, what can we consume locally? Like how do we make that chain between the person who makes a thing and the person who consumes the thing smaller so that there's- there's not as much like, I guess, market interference, I guess you would say. But then yeah. again, like coffee is one of those things that like we can't do that with. But I wonder what I've like kind of seen be really helpful in the coffee supply stream is like this idea that like the more that coffee is consumed within the country it's produced, the more that farmers are paid for it. Mm-hmm. So I wonder like, like, where, I guess, where does that leave us? And I guess, and you also mentioned, like, we're recording this during COVID-19. So this is really kind of a hard, could be a hard reset moment for us, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, that's a great point. A lot of producers that I know, um, and and those that I don't, I've seen, you know, it's all over, all over the internet, and also from people I've heard from directly of producers setting up 
roasting operations and opening cafes and wanting and realizing they have this wonderful, delicious coffee. Well, of course, the first people you want to share it with are the people closest to you, meaning your friends and families and neighbors and communities. And so I think that's an exciting trend. And I think, I mean, also too, if the more great coffee that stays closer to where it was produced, if that means that, again, those of us that are importing it to other places, maybe we have to value it differently. Um, you know, I think that's totally fair. Right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, and I do think that this is an interesting moment of, like you said, a hard, sort of a hard stop, or at least a pause on, on a lot of, a lot of the coffee industry. And it's, it's difficult for many people and it's difficult to, to try to wrap our heads around um, in terms of, you know, hospitality and community and how we create that. And the experience of drinking coffee is something that's social, but we're socially distant and limited in this moment. And, and I think it's a really great opportunity to sort of step back again and consider some of what we talked about in this conversation and the previous one that coffee is coffee. And so we've sort of created some distinctions and some divisions of specialty as being one thing and then non-specialty or commercial commodity coffee being something else. But just remembering that like it, it all happens on the same continuum and um, the CEO of Ally Coffee, where I work as the as the content manager, in addition to my other freelance writing jobs, um, the CEO there or COO, COO there is Ricardo Pereira, and he mentioned in a recent uh, interview this idea that you know you've more we have more coffee we have more people brewing coffee at home now than probably ever before, and so it's actually like a really interesting moment to see what do consumers, what's a comfort coffee? Sort of what's, what do they gravitate towards or what resonates with them in this time of uncertainty and perhaps fear, worry, sometimes sickness, sometimes, you know, just um, apprehension and all these different, these different things that people are dealing with. And, and just realizing that, you know, what, is there a way to deliver coffee that brings joy and connection and community to the consumers and the people who drink it, the clients who drink it and the families and homes where it's being brewed and prepared, but then also honors that full cost and that full price at origin sort of, you know, is there a way to strike a balance between something that, that satisfies both and maybe, and maybe part of that balance means honoring, you know, blended coffees or darker roasted coffees or coffees that are just like satisfying in some immediate familiar way uh, without going through that work of of segmenting them off and differentiating them as specialty, and that doing that can still and doing that and again doing that and buying from producers either you know th their whole harvest or different portions of of the production of a different farm or co-op or community um, and what that might mean for them also during a time of uncertainty. So so I do think that. Um, that yeah, if we know that at the center of this pricing process and price discovery process is a tool that is very abstract and complex, that um, you know, it's it certainly has its merits, but it certainly has its flaws. And so, um, just being conscious of how, again, how we can connect with consumers through offering you know, products. I love blended coffees. I love like a medium to dark roast coffee. Again, I grew up in New Hampshire and we have some delicious dark roasts up there in the winter that, oh, that's like the, the biggest treat to just snuggle up with a cough of, cup of coffee that's like chocolatey, almost smoky, nutty, and 
you know, mm -hmm. for me, that's something that I associate with lots of great memories and people and connections and stuff. And so I think I'm not alone in having that experience. So um, some of the, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity in, in creating connection and value in different ways with different types of coffee than maybe the specialty coffee industry has been fully open to in the past. But in this, in this new reality that we're all living through right now, I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, hopefully a lot of time to just look at some of this stuff from these bigger, bigger perspective, bigger picture angles, and to maybe have a realization that we might not have had in the, in the frenzy of <laughs> everything that we were doing before. This has been maybe one of the most illuminating conversations I've ever had. I learned so much and I appreciate you being so instructive and so clear and answering my pestering questions when I didn't understand what you were saying. So thank you, Rachel, so much for sharing your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for <laughs> braving the abstractions and everything. And I hope for everyone listening that again, this was something that not just answered some questions but opened some new questions and again I encourage everyone to to try to do their own research and read lots of stuff and dig into whatever you can find out there that was part two of my episode with Rachel Northrup and that's the end of our December Rewind series Thank you so much for listening to these old episodes of Vasfrista that I love so much. And we'll see you in 2022. Vasfrista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at vasfrista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.